Welcome to Out With Dan, the podcast that spotlights and examines the voices of LGBTQ authors, characters, and our allies. Together, we lift our voices and we tell our stories. I'm Dan White. Join me as I chat with this week's author. Hello, and welcome back to Out With Dan. I'm excited to talk to Benjamin Stevenson about everyone on this train is a suspect. Welcome back, Benjamin. Hi, Dan. Thanks for having me back. Oh, I'm very excited. This book was just as delicious as the first one, which was entitled Everyone in My Family Has Killed Someone. And I saw on your bio that you've been published in 27 languages on the first book. That's amazing for a debut novel. Congratulations. Thank you. Yeah, it it was a crazy, a crazy ride. And I keep, you know, every now and then the book's been out in Australia about two years now, the first book. And every now and then I just get a flurry of messages from a specific language, Italian, German. They just pop in and I think, oh, it must have published over there now. (laughs) Um, So it's this it's this fantastic global flurry of, of enthusiasm for the book, which is so cool. That is wonderful. And both books are really, really delicious, just as the first one was, this one is as well. So it's a wee bit of a sort of a takeoff on Agatha Christie's um, Murder on the Orient Express and the fact that it takes place in a train. But I would say much beyond that, it's very, very different. Can you give us a little setup of what the story is about? Yeah, absolutely. So the kind of homage to the Golden Age is that my main character, Ernest Cunningham, is a big fan of Golden Age mysteries. And in fact, he used to write how to uh, write books about how to put together a Golden Age mystery. So he sort of knows all the rules and how they work. And the idea behind him is that he is a fan of Golden Age mysteries that finds himself inside real life ones. And he wonders if he can follow the rules set down by Agatha Christie and, and her contemporaries, Ronald Knox, etc. Can he solve the mysteries in real life? So in the first book, Everyone in My Family Has Killed Someone, he takes on a serial killer known as the Black Tongue and he solves that mystery. In this book, Everyone on This Train is a Suspect, he is now writing these mysteries. So he has been invited on a writer's festival, which is to take place on the GAN, which is the train between Adelaide and Darwin. It goes between the top and the bottom of Australia straight through the desert. It goes for four days and three nights and he's on there with five other writers. Um, It starts off a little bit bickery, a little bit tense. There's some writer's egos at the fore as Ernest tries to kind of find his place and he's trying to write a sequel and he doesn't have any ideas. But on the first night when one of the writers is murdered, Ernest thinks, wow, I might have landed myself inside the sequel I'm trying to write. Um, All of the writers on board, all the surviving writers, decide that because they've spent a lifetime researching murder, that they all have the skills to solve the crime. So it becomes a train full of suspects who exactly know how to get away with murder, um, trying to race to solve the crime and one-up each other as well. So it's a really fun kind of multifaceted five detectives solving one crime. But I thought the true essence of this book is that a crime writer would be the perfect killer. And so how do you, uh, if you have six of them, how do you find out which one it might be? It was really, really well done. And, you know, to get into each of them's story was fascinating how each of them got there and what sort of put them there and who had taken what from whom. And I do think that 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 in today's world is something that's big, you know, with AI, which is something that you mentioned in the book. And it is 
how does that affect a person's writing and where they're going with things like that? Is AI large in Australia? If Do you know? Yeah, I think it looms large over everyone. And I think the way I use it in the book is to sort of capture a bit of a bit of writer's insecurity, a bit of the fear of, you know, are our words that we're leaving behind, are they replaceable? Can we be mimicked? Um, I genuinely believe that we can't yet. I don't think, especially the writing that I do, I think that, um, not to pat myself on the shoulder, but I think that wit and humour are something that a computer just can't capture. They just don't understand the pace and the nuance that you need. So I genuinely don't think that uh, my books will ever be overtaken by Skynet. But it's a genuine it's a genuine fear. You know, it's a fear for all the valuable employees of book publishing companies, you know. Sure. If AI writes the blurbs and designs the covers, then, you know, are we making you know, art in the same way? And I think that's an important discussion. And so it comes up in the book between the writers as well. And I thought you handled it very well. There wasn't it wasn't a preaching, it wasn't a for or against. It was simply interwoven into the story, which was a good thing. It was something that, you know, because I do think each person has their own voice, whether it's just speaking, but especially writers. You know, there's some writers that we read that we're very influenced by what they write. And it's like, yes, I can listen to this voice every time because they have something I can get into their syncopation of writing. And I do think that especially with humor, AI is not good at humor. And it's thank God. So how does your, think, yes, sir? I think, I think also it's, it, is a, it is a tool in some way. It's, it's a tool that people will develop and refine and use to suit them. It doesn't suit me, but, you know, it would be um, short-sighted of me to pretend that I don't have it easier than writers 150 years ago did when Microsoft Word tells me when to use who or whom sometimes, you know, that, that's, that's an algorithm. I'm benefiting yes, from the spell check. I'm not there on my on my typewriter, so <laughs> there are ways it will naturally evolve that won't um, depreciate the skill of writers. Is is probably the hope. I agree with you. So you do stand up as a as a different part of your life. You have a, you wear many hats. Do you find that your your comedic portion of stand up? Is easy to write into a book or is it? A, do you have to work at it a little harder? They're both very, very different. Um, a stand-up comedy show is about 10,000 words and goes for 60 minutes. And a book is 100,000 words and goes for as many minutes as the reader wants. Um, it takes about the same amount of time to write 10,000 words of stand-up as it does 100,000 words of, of a novel. Um, Comedy is all about pace and it's all about word economy. And so I think there are parts of my books where it really benefits from those stand-up skills, particularly when you're writing crime fiction. You know, the pace and the tension that you can put in a room and when you break the tension, you're breaking it for different reasons, but that's how you get a laugh in comedy is, is by breaking tension. So all of that kind of really forms itself really naturally. But I will definitely spend... You know, I'll spend a whole day on two sentences if if it's what I call a punchline sentence. It doesn't necessarily have to be a joke, but sometimes they're jokes. Sometimes they're the chapter-ending cliffhangers. Sometimes it's the, and then the murderer is. You know, you want those sentences to be perfect. So, the, yeah, 
So the punchline sentences, I'll spend a whole day on 25 words and that's like writing stand-up. That, that's the kind of the lengthy kind of process. But I find, them, I find them quite different in that when I get burnt out on one, when I'm writing jokes and I don't feel funny, then I think, well, maybe I'll go to my laptop and kill a few people. And, um, and it kind of keeps both sides of the brain going. I find that most people who know me in real life know that I'm a bit of a clown and rarely I'm too serious. But yet I find myself watching Law and Order, the same episode repeatedly. I already know who's going to die. I'm just going to enjoy it one more time. Or a bad day at work gives me a night of diehard movies because it's like somebody has to pay for this. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Yeah. So talk a little bit. And I know this is this is just simply me asking you as a writer. So there's revenge and justice they're not the same thing is one of them sweeter to you than the other when you're writing or do you enjoy both the same oh that is a great question so one of the key things about writing golden age style mysteries for me is justice and i think that i think that that's what make golden age mysteries um popular these days they're sort of coming back a bit because the the bad guy or girl will be you know they'll be caught they'll be they'll receive their due punishment um and the good guy will get it all back to the status quo also often the villains in golden age murder mysteries aren't the nicest people so it's not quite as grim as you know, to compare it to kind of crime fiction of the early 2000s, mid 2000s, where it's always the pretty blonde girl is the victim in the, in the opening. It's slightly different in the golden age, you know, a reprehensible person is killed by another reprehensible person. So there's a certain comfort in that uh, bad people do bad things and the good people kind of, um, you know, restore society's sense of justice and that's really important when you're writing golden age mystery now if you did it all like that it would be too predictable so i don't go all the way down those lines but a sense of justice is very important to the books and that definition can be sort of moved around you know the way that poirot handles several of his cases comes down to a certain point of moral justice without spoiling um a couple of them but so that that is very important to me but it is way more fun to write revenge characters wanting revenge on other characters you know simmering resentments and hatreds and and how they can bubble over and how people will react to that is really really fertile ground for a writer so i love setting them against each other and that's what's so great about a train is that no one can get off so i put six people on there who all have backstories and squib squabbles and histories and I just see what they do to each other. And that's really fun for me. So I, revenge is, is, is way more fun to write. <laughs> well, and I, I, this came to me when I was reading because so many of your characters sometimes have even both of them as a justification for why they might have done it. And I, thought, I found as a reader that was something that was very interesting to me because there, you do think of justice as being almost right where revenge is almost always wrong. Yet at the same time, I enjoy reading both and have enjoyed reading books that were focused on revenge solely. It just depends on, you know, if the writer does a good job and I get invested in it. So, yeah, the key, the key is, is the reasons why people are wanting to commit murder, both your murderer or murderers and the, all the red herrings 
they have to all be absolutely convincing. And that's what it comes down to. So even if it's something that is unjust, it has to be something that I, as a reader, when I'm reading it, I can relate to. I can see why you went to that length. And, and if you can get there, and if you can get there on every character's arc, um, you know, what do they want and would they kill for it? And if the answer is yes, then you've got six red herrings. And really, I don't do this because I plot out my books at the start, but really, if you write a book like that, you can pick any of them. And, and that's how Agatha Christie did it. You know, she'd just write and then it would be the person that she, she picked near the end or anecdotally anyway. Um, and so that's really valuable because it makes your red herrings really strong. So a red herring comes to be a guy in a trench coat standing in the corner who's a bit creepy. No, it has to be someone that wants something and it has to be something that they're willing to kill for. And if you believe that all six suspects are willing to kill for what they want, then the writer can choose any of them and it will almost always be a surprise. Um, so that's that's what I really strive for. It, and it's interesting like that. I will say, I'm not going to say whether she did it or not. I was really hoping it was Simone for what it, for my own personal reasons. There was something I just, I don't know, I sort of wanted to see her strung up at the end of the book. So uh. <laughs> Simone is absolutely one of my favorite new characters in this book. So she's the literary agent. So she's Ernest's literary agent. And she's on the train to sort of hustle him up in writing, but she's also trying to make some deals on the side. She's got some other stuff going on as well. Um, and she's, the funny thing is I handed in this book and my agent was the first person to read it. And I said, <laughs> I said, just so you know, you're not the agent. The agent is a very unique individual and it's not you. And then the second person to read it is my publisher. And the publisher in the book, Wyatt Lloyd, is a real piece of work as well. And so the second person to read it is my publisher. And I said, just so you know, it's not you. So <laughs> it seemed to be the running theme. That was a lot of fun, too, because it does keep the reader guessing. Because, you know, there there was enough bad going on with your characters that you were like, yeah, it could be any of them. And I do. So one thing you did, which I laughed straight out loud, is Hatch says, does it always take this long to get it out? And all of them <laughs> responded yes in unison. And I thought to myself, if Marple and Poirot and Holmes were all sitting there, they would have said, yes, we have got to tell the entire story, not just a little bit, but the entire story. So that was a great deal of fun. Oh, did that's you, great. Yeah, that's one of my favorite lines as well. <laughs> did you have a favorite character? Yeah, so I think there's so much fun to be had with the behind the scenes of book publishing. So people like Simone were really, really fun to write. But my favorite is Alan Royce. And... He is a sort of semi-washed up paperback airport thriller writer. And he sort of can't let go of the fact that he's the old guard and his ego kind of spills over into almost all of his conversations with, with Ernest, whose books he, don't, he doesn't respect at all. <laughs> and he, I really like what I like to call a literary punching bag. I think they're a lot of fun to write when you can just have someone that automatically every scene you know they're in is going to be fun or they're going to say something dark or, or they, they sort of um, push against the expectations of the plot and the book and of civility itself. And in the first book, that was a fan favourite character called Andy. And Andy is Ernest's uncle. And he's a gormless kind of uh, dorky man. But he's also very, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? People found him really lovable like in that kind of 
sort of hopeless way. So people really liked him. So he, he's good. He's really good comedic mileage um, for his dorkiness. But at his centre, he's he's got a bit of charm and people kind of like him. And he's actually back in this book because people liked him that much. He's got a couple of cameos. Um, but Royce is the literary punching bag that has no redeeming qualities. So every time I'm doing something on the page to Andy that I think is a bit mean in the first book when I was writing it, I'm like, oh, I love Andy. Oh, poor Andy. Um, and yet it's funny and it goes in the book. But Royce, I'm like, yeah, stick it to you. <laughs> no, no sympathy. I love that. So I, I have to, that leads into asking, have you been to very, very many literary conferences? Yes, and I absolutely love them. They're all way less murderous than this book portends them to be. Um, <laughs> I, I would say, though, so, yeah, none of the events in the book are real and none of the writers or, or publishing professionals are real or based on anyone. Um, but I will say that I've been in the arts sector, performing arts, stand-up, you know, backstage across a whole bunch of things, as well as writing and literary festivals. And I've been in, in those environments for, you know, 20 years. And everything in the book, in some way or another, is sort of something that I've overheard said in a green room, been said to me, or I've said myself. Like, I'm not immune to the writer's egos. And all of their insecurities are real kind of things that we all feel and experience. Um, and then I've exaggerated them for fiction and to put Ernest in the environment but it certainly captures a certain um a certain impression of kind of what it's like working in the arts because basically everyone's egos you know ego ego in the most literal sense of the word I'm not saying people have giant egos but your literal ego is is in these pages when you put it yes. out yes. when you share it with someone you know that's that's going out there and so you know, something that really distracts Ernest in the book is that one of the other writers gives him a one-star Goodreads review. And, and and that's not something that is a real thing or that has ever happened to me. But how Ernest feels about that is very easy for me to relate to because yes. we all have those kind of latent fears. Oh, yes. And I've, I've spoken with several authors who have had either really, really glowing reviews or really poor reviews and it hasn't always been what I thought it would be. Just because someone gets a bad review doesn't mean it's not an excellent work. It means that that one particular reader did not connect with it. Um, I or they had a bad day. They missed their bus. They didn't have breakfast. Precisely. They to read your book at the wrong time. That's, you know, that's, that's It's absolutely true. So I did notice that Pappy makes an appearance in this book. So are you a bourbon fan? Yes, yes. Um, I, I have a, a slight disclaimer on when people ask me that is because I do I do like it and I drink it, but I'm very slow and somehow the word got out around my friends that I like it and I drink it, which is true, but um, I drink probably one bottle a year and now when it's my birthday, everyone gets me a bottle and I'm like, <laughs> that is that's a decade's worth for me. Like I don't, I, I'm so slow. Benjamin, um, I, I don't, I don't mean to put myself on you, but you should invite me over. I can, I can deplete your story. Oh, you'll, you'll help out. You'll help out. 
that's oh, important. I... That's valuable. I invite people around and I say, please drink it. And people say things, you know, like I'm not saying I have the most sophisticated um, taste or, or best cabinet, you know, but you accumulate things. And I'll be like, let's open this one. And someone will be like, are you sure? And I'm like, yes, please, let's if, drink it. If it's sitting there growing dust, what good is it? You, it's meant point? to be shared. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Again, the book is Everyone on This Train is a Suspect. Benjamin, do you have social media or a website you'd like to share? Yeah, so I mainly use Instagram, and it's at Stevenson Experience, spelled like my last name with a V. Perfect. Lovely. Thank you so much for joining me. This was so good, and I highly recommend it. Thank you so much for having me. Sure. Hang on for me just a second. Thank you for joining me for this week's episode of Out With Dan. You can find more information about this podcast and its host at outwithdan.com, on Twitter at outwithdan, and on Instagram and Facebook at gooutwithdan. This podcast is hosted by Authors on the Air Global Radio Network, and the theme music is provided by bensound.com. Join us again soon for the next episode of Out With Dan.